I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. What up? A snack episode. <laughs> Today we have uh, several interesting tidbits and clinical updates for you. Ooh. JJ. Yes. I'm going to tell you about several things. I'm excited. Okay. Can you tell? I can super tell. <laughs> I'm excited. Very good. You're doing such a good job with your excited voice. So, because JJ's voice is still recovering, I am going to read the things to JJ and uh, see what she has to say. <laughs> and we'll see how the rest of the episode goes voice-wise, whether JJ can read a tidbit or not. This is going to be fun. Okay. All right. So the first thing, JJ, that I want to tell you about is this. Did you know that the feeding of raw food diets to dogs has been linked to resistant bacterial infections in people? Um, I knew that it can uh, infect you with uh, E. coli. I didn't know about it being resistant. Well, let me tell you about the study. I'm going to read the sources at the end, as always, and put them in the show notes, okay? But essentially, there is a Clinician's Brief article, pretty recent, from March of 2023, uh, that talks about a 2022 research paper by Monzi et al. Apologize if that is not how you say your name. I am so sorry. The study found that the presence of antibiotic-resistant E. coli in puppies was associated with the feeding of raw diets. So here's what we had in the study. 223 young dogs. Okay, pretty good amount. Mm -hmm. uh, this included a comprehensive evaluation, questionnaires, bacterial cultures of fecal samples, and then any sort of isolates were genetically tested. And, uh, you know, they were evaluated for antibiotic resistance as well. Now, at that same time, they also looked at urinary bacteria from human UTI cases in that same geographic area. Hmm. And what they found was fluorinated quinolone-resistant E. coli was commonly isolated in dogs who were fed a raw food diet. And that same E. coli, and when I say same, I mean the same resistance patterns as far as what drugs that could kill it and what drugs couldn't kill it anymore, and also the genetic sequencing of that E. coli was the same in people with UTIs in that geographic area. Hmm. And when they looked at all of the potential factors involved, the only lifestyle factor that was significantly associated with dogs carrying the resistant bacteria was feeding of a raw food diet. Now that's either a home-prepared one or a commercially prepared raw diet. Now this is important because fluorinated quinolones as a class of antibiotics, uh, they're considered critically important for human health. This is a major public health concern. Mm -hmm. um, if we eventually have a bunch of these bad bugs that are all resistant to fluorinated quinolones, then we're not going to be able to use those antibiotics to substantially treat infections anymore. So um, the conclusions for the study were the following. Owners who feed raw diets uh, need to be made aware of the risk to immunocompromised individuals in their households or who should even potentially come into contact with their pets. 
Veterinary staff need to take additional precautions and wear PPE when handling pets fed raw diets. That's not because they might get directly sick, but they might colonize themselves with resistant bacteria, which can then be spread to other people, or they could eventually become sick with them. Yeah, you should also make sure to research what it takes to properly clean the food bowls, Mm -hmm. because just some warm water and some dish soap may not be enough. Right. I don't know. There's several clinics that don't allow the feeding of raw diets because of the the risk that goes with it. Sure, sure. And and I do want to point out, like the dogs. We're when we're talking about the UTI in people, mm-hmm. it's not that the owners of the dogs got this UTI. It was mm-hmm. like circulating in the geographic area at the time, and so. Even if you're not handling the food bowls, even if you're coming into contact with the dog itself, yeah. um, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. Because these dogs weren't sick with E. coli. They're just hanging out, you know. Shedding something. Yeah, relaxy taxi and, and the most common reason that people get UTIs is not, you know, it's not like a contagious situation. It's just, um, you know, a proximity to the booty situation. Mm-hmm. So if you yourself get colonized with resistant E. coli, and then you get a UTI, which is most often caused by E. coli from you, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a resistant infection. Wipe front to back, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true, JJ. Good, solid advice. <laughs> solid advice. And then, you know, the study basically said, you know, veterinarians need to educate clients who feed raw diets about um, the risks associated with raw diets, mm-hmm. which is true. I'm just... <laughs> I do worry that they don't care and they won't listen, but okay. Yeah. That's just my, my biased, my biased opinion slash concern is that if you try to provide that education, sometimes there is substantial resistance to listening to it. Yep. Uh, so do with that what you will, but, um, you know, more studies uh, are needed to further investigate this link. Now, this is not the first time that feeding of raw diets has been linked to problems with resistant bacterial um, infections or the presence of resistant bacteria in people or pets. However, this is the first time that it's been linked to strains circulating in the geographic area and other people who don't own the pets. So, you know, I think this is an important thing for us to look at further. Okay, let's talk about the sources for that information. The first is a clinician's brief article from March 2023 by Daniel L. Chan titled The Risks of Feeding Raw Diets to Dogs and Considerations for Human Health. And the research article that that is based on is called Evidence that Fecal Carriage of Resistant E. coli by 16-Week-Old Dogs in the United Kingdom is Associated with Raw Feeding. And it was published in June 2022 in the publication One Health, Volume 14. Sweet. So the next article that we're going to talk about kind of ties into an episode that we aired last season. Uh, it was Snack Episode 3.5, A Tire, in which we <laughs> talked about uh, people's perception of what veterinarians wear. And I thought, well, let's see if there's a study about how dogs perceive what veterinarians wear. Mm. And there is one. Yes. So we've all kind of heard of white coat syndrome, yep. where it's perceived that 
the dogs will recognize someone, a doctor in their white coat, and become immediately fearful, stressed out, that sort of thing. Which, I mean, seen in action, there's some people take the white coat off and go back in, and the dog calms down. So, yep. I mean, I, it's a thing. I agree. I think it's, I feel like I have seen clinical evidence of it in real life. So, let's yeah. see if there's some study evidence. I found a 2022 study uh, that looked at this issue. So basically, they put two vets in the room with a dog. Both vets have food rewards that they're offering to the dog. The vets didn't talk or make eye contact. And one wore a white coat and the other one didn't. And they looked at how many times the dog approached each veterinarian and how much time the dog spent physically located between their owners and each vet. There was 37 dogs that were evaluated, and they ranged in age from two to six years of age. And dogs did show a preference for the vet who was not in the white coat. So, study matches what we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Seven out of 37 would not leave the owner's side to get the treat, and those were excluded. Okay. Because <laughs> they were babies. They said they were weenies. <laughs> so, the dogs were significantly more likely to approach the vet that was not in the white coat, and the dogs spent significantly more time in the area of the no-coat vet. So, conclusion... White coats may indeed be the stressor, or a stressor. There's probably many stressors sure. that's adding to it. Yeah, absolutely. And for further study, is it all coats or just white ones? So we need to do some more research for yeah. that. I've known a veterinarian in, in my past who wore gray, and and they were just absolutely adamant that white was too scary, and so they wore it like a gray lab coat. Hmm. It's the only time I've ever seen a color besides white. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm trying to think back because it seems like white coats have not, I mean, they haven't always been like something that vets wore, at least I don't know in the South. In my experience, well, I guess back in the the 90s when it was a male predominant field, you know, most of them wore like a scrub shirt of varying colors or one of those like zip up cover up things and then just like dress pants or jeans even so and uh, so that because the colors varied i don't know that there was as much of a reaction to it but there's been probably i guess around the early 2000s it became more popular to wear the white coat now that's just my experience yeah you know, well, the white coat symbolizes like status and yeah, professionalism, education, and you literally have a white coat ceremony when mm-hmm. you're starting clinics. So it is a it's a symbolic thing, and you also wear the white coat to cover up like your dress clothes so they don't get disgusting, mm-hmm. or if you're in scrubs because you're between surgeries, you use the white coat to prevent contamination of the surgical scrubs. So. There are definite reasons to mm-hmm. use the coat. However, if our patients are too fearful, then we might need to reevaluate it. Yeah, I wonder if it would make sense to just vary the color a little bit. Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, that's a definite place to look. Yeah. Yeah, in the article, you know, they mentioned like, hey, we need to look at additional colors. Mm-hmm. So I propose gray is the first place to start because my previous mentor was like, gray gray is the way to go yes she would only wear gray yeah (laughs) absolutely i don't know if that's in my color wheel (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding (laughs) the source 
is an article titled Dog's Preference for White Coat versus No Coat When Offered a Food Reward in the Exam Room um, by, is that Fanucci? I think it's Fanucci. Fanucci and Norton. Yeah. And it's in the Open Access Journal of Veterinary Science and Research, March 2022. And we apologize if we did not get your name correct. Yes. Sorry. Okay, so then I have one more uh, tidbit to share with you today. This is about adding dexamethasone to topical preparations. So I have known uh, veterinarians to do this in the past, various things, like basically it's a type of in-house compounding. And this particular article was looking at adding dexamethasone to topical white-style products that contain chlorhexidine. The reason that they were looking at this was that there are no commercially available wipes that contain both antimicrobials and dexamethasone at the same time. And if you're wanting to avoid some sort of systemic steroid and you're wanting to do something topical, you either have to use more than one product or kind of rig it yourself. So because they know that in-clinic compounding occurs, they decided let's see whether the dexamethasone remains active and stable in these preparations. Vets just love to sprinkle dex on everything. That is true. That is true. It is magic. Veterinary salt and pepper. (laughs) So they looked at the stability of injectable dex-SP, that's dexamethasone sodium phosphate, after the addition to three different types of commercially available veterinary chlorhexidine wipes or pads. (laughs) Now, the volume of... uh, the volume of dexamethasone that was added varied based on the container type and the liquid base volume. So essentially they used enough via calculations to ensure that all of the product got fully submerged in the dexamethasone. And then they just shook it up. Okay. <laughs> that was their mixing method. It was like they gave it a good old shake. <laughs> The goal was to get a concentration of 0.04% dexamethasone solution per wipe. And then the containers were temperature controlled under 77 degrees Fahrenheit and at 60% relative humidity. So to try to mimic like... Exactly. And then they looked at the dexamethasone concentrations in the wipes. They took them from the top, the middle, and the bottom of the container to see if they substantially varied, depending on the location. And they did it at baseline, 14 and 28 days. And normally we, you know, I don't know, this is a hard and fast rule, but we try not to, like, mention specific products or Mm -hmm. whatever, unless maybe there's not really a other option or something (laughs) like that commercially. But in this paper, they did talk about specific products so fair game yeah so i'm going to list the specific products i mean you can find them if you look up the paper so okay so they tested three different types of wipes and pads they tested trisclor four wipes they tested keto hex wipes and then they tested the duxo pads and what they found was that in the two wipe preparations so trisclor four Nope. Trisclor 4 and Ketohex, the dexamethasone concentration stayed consistent up to the 20-day mark. Sweet. However, in the pad preparation, the Duxo pads, the dexamethasone concentration declined significantly. Like it was significantly reduced already at two weeks and then even further reduced at 28 days. (laughs) 
And they said, well, the pads are made different. They're a little thicker, maybe more absorbent. And that may be why that the pads did not hold the dexamethasone as well. Or, well, I guess maybe they held it a little too well and it wasn't available. <laughs> you squeeze them. Right. Um, so they thought maybe that was the difference. But the two wipe products, they found that this was like a reasonable thing to do. So they said, you know, adding dexamethasone to these specific types of wipes as featured in the study is reasonable with a shelf life of at least 28 days. But they cautioned that the study can't be extrapolated to other wipe preparations or to pads because of the significant differences in the absorption of the materials. Yeah. And I think this is a good thing to review because... You always want to do your research before you go doing an in-house compounding preparation. I've seen lots of recipes for different things over the years. So, same. you know, just, uh, you know, maybe look it up. Mm -hmm. Just Google it. Hop on Google Scholar. You can look it up and see if anyone has truly looked to see if any of the ingredients deactivate one another or if they remain active. Yeah. Be careful with your science experiments. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, sources for that tidbit. Uh, the first is a clinician's brief article from March 2023 by Sandra N. Koch, and the title was Stability of Injectable Dexamethasone in Chlorhexidine Wipes and Pads. And that article heavily referenced a study by Bancroft et al. called Stability of Dexamethasone Sodium Phosphate Over a 28-Day Period When Added to Commercial Veterinary Wipe and Pad Products. That was published in Veterinary Dermatology in 2022. Yay. All right, JJ. Well, I think that just about does it for our clinical updates for today. I feel updated. I think we have a couple more minutes if you want to do a favorite thing, like a brief one. Okay. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so my favorite thing. Um, last weekend, uh, had some family come up, and we met them and went to the Space and Rocket Center. Yeah. I mean, we've lived in Huntsville for uh, close to 20 years now, and I've never been there. Really? Uh, yeah, I know. The last time I was at that place was 1985. Wow. Yep. So, it was cool, yeah. especially that the building where they have, like, the, the real Saturn V. That place is really nice. Yeah. There's like, you could spend hours just you going to each like a party in display. There, right? I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Um, they had a, a guided tour that took a long time, but I, we, Ben and I just kind of took ourselves on our own guided tour. And it was really neat seeing all the, the stuff and reading all the things. And it was very educational yeah. and fun and nice to fit, spend time with family. And I was proud that I was able to maneuver all over the place without dying so it was a good day it was a long day but it was hot yeah it's been really hot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was fun it was nice to see family and education go Huntsville that's fantastic I I really enjoy the Space and Rocket Center too I haven't been in a few years the last time I went the Star Wars exhibit was there, oh, and it was really fun that would be awesome I had a really good time at that <laughs> um, but anyway it is nice. And yeah, if you have like a fancy business, because I mean, it has to be fancy business because it's pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. You can have your like corporate function in the in the hall with the Saturn V rocket. Wow. It's pretty fancy. That's pretty fancy. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> well, let's see. What you got? I guess my favorite thing is going to be that I recently started 
doing yoga classes, like formally, for the first time in, well, first time consistently, like I had been to yoga before. And I'll be honest, like, didn't really like it very much (laughs) for various reasons. Um, But I picked it up again, and I'm really enjoying it so far, mostly because I hurt less after I go. (laughs) For sure. Um, I think it's just maybe like I've grown into the yoga. I am now old enough to appreciate yoga. Yay. And have not been old enough previously (laughs) to, you know, to, to fully appreciate it. So I go, you know, a couple of times a week in the morning and it's really nice. And, you know, got to kind of get to see the, you know, early morning light coming through the windows. And the the place I go is in an old church. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a restored or refurbished. It used, it's not a church anymore. It used to be a church, but the stained glass is still up. So in the morning, the, you can see the patterns on the floor. It's really cool and everything. And I haven't had a negative yoga experience at this place yet <laughs> as far as people being weird. You know? That's awesome. And like, I don't know, judgy or something. Yeah. Like I've had some, I've had negative yoga experiences before, I feel like, mm-hmm. um, which has made me feel distrustful. But so far, I haven't had any bad experiences yet. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm excited to see how that continues to go. Yay, yoga. Well, I feel like more like ready to go about my day when I do that first. I like it. It's pretty good. And there's this class called restorative yoga that I tried. And it really truly is just like napping in different yoga positions for five or 10 minutes at a time. And so I was like, okay, um, I can for sure get on board with this. For sure. Sweet. They'll be like, okay, get into this position. Make sure you're fully supported. Now we're going to rest here. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that this one really qualifies as exercise. It's more like a meditation, but you know what? It's still, if it helps, it's still good. Yeah. <laughs> it's still good. If it still helps, use it. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget that you can submit cases through our website. There's a form there with a link at the top, and it's introvets.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.